Hi everybody, welcome to Sex and the Bull City. I am Dr. Sophia Caudill and I'm owner and clinical director of Bull City Psychotherapy with locations in Durham, North Carolina and Wilmington, North Carolina, soon to be in Apex. And today we are going to talk about um, can couples really survive sex addiction? But before we get in, in on that, I'm going to introduce my lead associate here, Matt. Matt, hey, how are you? Yes, doing well. Doing well. Happy to be here. Excited for this episode. Uh, my name is Matt Kreiner. I'm our lead associate and clinical manager here at Bull City Psychotherapy and Wellness. Um, I'm a clinical social worker, really just all around rock star psychotherapist. I think yep, we should yep. fit that on the business card. Absolutely. Um, but no, super excited to, to be here and to uh, talking about this topic specifically. Yeah, so um, thanks, Matt. That was nice. You are a, a rock star, <laughs> superstar psychotherapist, so I love having you here. And um, our practice, you know, I'm not sure if you've listened to our few other podcasts. We're kind of new at this. We've only got three out, but we specialize in sex addiction, sex therapy, relationships, intimacy issues, and attachment issues. So we thought that it would be really great to kind of put a podcast out there that answers a pretty simple question that can get very complex about coupleships. And so if we are dealing with, um, you know, a, a really painful sexual betrayal and trauma, can relationships really survive something as as painful as sex addiction? And there's so much to be said about this, but we thought we would try to break it down just in some very, very basic ways that maybe we'll dive into um, another podcast, but also um, hopefully be able to send you in a direction of looking into things maybe where you are or online or if you're nearby us, giving us a call and we can help you with this. But um, Matt, anything you want to say about couples surviving sex addiction before we kind of dive into this? Yeah, I, I love this topic. It's, it's huge and it's messy and um, it really gives us a chance to meet people um, in, in their places that just seem unmeetable. It gives us a chance to meet people in a place where I, I think what we're talking about with this topic is, is there reason for hope? You know, and it gives us a chance to talk about what it's like to, to cultivate hope in some really dark and painful spaces. Um, so yes, I love this work, uh, this specific slice of the work, this couples repair. Um, I, you know, I love talking with people about their, their most intimate uh, relationships. So yeah, this, this is a great topic. And I think um, unless you want to go another direction, it might make sense to start at like just the messiness of it all. Yeah. What does it look like? Why why is it so difficult to find hope in these situations? Why does it get how does it get so messy and so painful and so dark when folks what does it look like when folks are dealing with sex addiction in the context of their coupleship? What does betrayal trauma actually look like in real life? Yeah, and, and I and I do want to get into that. And before we get into that, I just wanted to mention um, I've been doing addiction work for over 20 years and a lot of things that addicts actually think when they're in a coupleship is you know I can't this can never be fixed I can never make up for all the wrongs I have done and that's even with addictions that are alcohol related or substance abuse um, gambling anything else and then if we add sexual betrayal 
on top of all of that into a coupleship, um, wow, I, I can't even imagine um, the level of complete hopelessness that an addict must feel. And so you're right, Matt, um, this conversation hopefully will be able to, you know, give some people hope out there that are wondering themselves, is this even possible? I mean, is this just some, you know, silly thing that I read about that other people do, or can this happen in my life? Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk about what, what sex addiction, like how can it actually present in relationships? Um, I'm just going to name a few and then yeah. Matt, you, if I missed some, you just kind of chime in. Um, so a lot of times we see porn and masturbation compulsivity. So that, that means that, you know, someone is choosing to isolate and look at, look at porn and masturbate on their own more than connecting with a partner. Um, we also see cases where people visit prostitutes, massage parlors, um, they may have a long-term affair or a few of them or a lot of short affairs. Um, emotional affairs also fit into this. Um, we also see a lot of um, a lot of compulsivity and addiction to technology where there's positive feedback, for instance, um, on apps or you know, it could be Facebook conversations, but anything that's going to be sort of feeding that fantasy part of, of someone, um, turning away from the relationship and turning towards some of these other more fantasy-based, non-reality pastimes that may or may not end result in someone having an orgasm, but it could just emotionally um, be feeding a part of, of them that is, you know, really not not being met, and I really mean that, not that the partner's not meeting that need, but that someone else, you know, has some kind of issue that they're not meeting that need on their own. Um, anything else, Matt, about that? What else? Yeah. That's pretty clinical, so sure. <laughs> yeah, let's make this a little more real. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. No, I'm with you. Like, generally, you know, it's somebody who's, who has a, a, some sort of pain they're managing, and they go to soothe it in a way that takes them away from their coupleship, mm -hmm. right? I love how you frame that as turn, turning away instead of towards. Um, and that can take all kinds of forms, but yeah, right. How does it show up, you know, specifically in, in people's real lives? Um, a lot of times we hear folks talk about like a big discovery. So that means something like, oh, um, you know, and, and you know, for the ease of our conversation, I, I'd like to put the disclaimer out there. We're typically going to use heteronormative pronouns in, in a coupleship where there's a male and a female. Typically the male is going to present as the addict and the, the female is the partner. Um, that's not absolutely not always how it looks. There's, there are these issues in same-sex relationships, and sometimes in, in heterosexual relationships, there's, uh, you know, the female is the addict. And, but just for the ease of our language, I like to put that disclaimer out. Yeah, good. So, um, a lot of times, what this big, painful discovery can look like is something like, um, okay, you know, he's he's in the shower, his phone goes off. Well, I just was going to look real quick because I thought I was waiting to hear about plans for X, Y, Z, and I noticed that this text message is from, you know, a woman I don't know, and it pops up, and there's, you know. An, it's a sex, a sexual image or something, and then that sets off this big, you know, um, hunt for what else is out there, what else, what else is, because, you know, <laughs> remember this Dr. Phil quote from, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, he was on in the afternoon, he's like, for every rat you see, there are 20 under the porch, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I think that's absolutely right. Human beings don't really act in isolation very often, we don't just do things once. Um, so, yeah, so there's this big, painful discovery, um, typically, and it's, it's a text, or it's an email, or it's, it's a phone call. Sometimes, you know, uh, somebody will call up and say, hey, uh, I learned that this is your husband and we've been doing this for you know, this long or whatever. 
So there's a lot of times there's a big painful event and a discovery, which is awful, right? And what's even worse follows up very closely thereafter, which is the person gets caught and they go into just disaster control mode. And they will say and do whatever it takes to limit the damage. Limit the damage for themselves and limit the damage to their, their partner too a lot. You know, they, they don't like to see their person in pain, but they really don't like to see themselves getting caught. So that damage control mode um, usually spins into a lot of lying, a lot of covering up, a lot of what can I tell her just to get me out of this moment? What is the least amount of information I can let her know that will kind of mollify her pain a little bit and get us through to tomorrow so I can continue to try to repair this? And even folks with the best of intentions, like I knew I was out of line, I knew that was a bad choice, I never want to do this again. That's part of how we know addiction is present at times, is when they're in this shame and pain place, and yet a day, a week, a month later, they're back to acting out again. Right, so that's a really typical cycle of how this stuff shows up, is there's a big painful um, discovery, and then there's this thing we call kind of staggered disclosure, where the, or staggered dis discovery, where the, the partner gets kind of re-injured, re-traumatized by learning more pieces the next week and the next week and the next month. That it wasn't just that one incident. Wherever you're at, you see there's 20 under the porch. Yeah. Right? So that's a lot of times how folks will start to tell their story in our rooms for the first time is that there was this giant painful day six months ago, we tried to recover from it, and then boom, there was more and there was more and there was more. Yeah, and I, I mean, I know that is a, a pretty common way that it happens and then I was just while you were talking I was thinking of well there's a lot of other ways this shakes out too I have a lot of clients or or partners who come to me and um, you know sometimes the addict is so very sick and there might be other issues also going on um, they've already left the relationship and and they have no desire or intention of doing the work to keep it together they just, you know, continue to detach even further, and almost sometimes the partner confronting with evidence is a way for them to pack their bags and finally be done. Um, you know, I know I experienced this in, that in my first marriage, and and that and that's when someone is very, very sick, and um, you know, it's just very, it's a very different, different deal, and and we do see that here in the practice as well. Um, so yeah, this can really kind of um, present a lot of different ways. And then let's kind of look at like, so after there's this big discovery that, that usually happens and you know, sometimes people kind of move through that in all the wrong ways um, if they're not in therapy first. Um, the partner can demand that, that he or she know immediately, I've got to know all the information and that also can be re-traumatizing. Um, sometimes addicts, you know, really want to tell all because it really helps them feel better it, it helps their their guilt you know feel like it's it's less and they can feel less guilt and shame but however that is incredibly traumatizing again to the partner so the main thing that that we try to do is you know try to get people in as quickly as possible so that we can um, and again if anybody's hearing this if you're in a situation like this, wherever you live, look online and try to find a certified sex addiction therapist. Call them, make an appointment, figure out how this can be contained as quickly as possible in a helpful clinical way so that 
in a very responsible manner this can be worked through and everybody can find out all the facts but there needs to be preparation work to do that and we just need to really contain the fallout from this from getting any bigger so we like to really um, you know really do that containment here as soon as we can and so again let me just go ahead and say so what do couples do after all this happens um, there's that discovery what happens next please go to a therapist if that, if that happens to you um, so we see this sometimes where some couples decide right then and there it could be the addict or it could be the partner um, I've certainly worked with partners that are like this is absolutely ridiculous I have zero intention of working through this with this person I don't respect them anymore this is not anything that I can be okay with even if they completely get better you know happy to be their friend but can no longer have this person as my special someone and they, very early on they leave the marriage so um, or the relationship or the coupleship whatever the situation might be so that certainly happens some of the time and then I think what we see most often is people try to work through it as a coupleship um, so we're going to talk more about that but with this last caveat being when people decide to kind of part early in treatment or early in after, right after discovery they still have to do their own individual treatment um, so lots of therapy and and repair and individual work has to happen before one really is going to enter into another relationship successfully so some people incorrectly think that oh I can just do this with another person it's going to be fine that's not the case like work still has to happen even if they leave the relationship that's right yeah so um, that's just how some of that works and then sometimes people try to stay together and that's kind of a lot of what we do here we certainly respect and work with people who want to leave the relationship and we certainly do a lot of that sure but most of our people are here trying to make it work Matt I know you love to do couples therapy yeah. and um, so so what are the, some of the things that, that you see happen early on in this repair work yeah, absolutely. And actually, I'm going to take take two minutes and yeah. add a little more, just kind of hold a little more space for just the messiness of it all. Yeah. Get into oh, please. Early recovery yeah. conversation because yep. yep. it, it feels really important just to kind of name some, some of that pain that, that people feel and why it can get so messy. Um, <clears throat> and I, I'm also kind of moved to say, you know, I, I really appreciate you naming, you know, some of your experience with, with your first marriage like you did. You know, we're real people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on this podcast, in our therapy rooms, yeah. we're real people with real experiences. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, about my uh, coupleship in the context of my addiction as well um, in a second. But basically, I wanted to hold some space for a minute for this idea that um, part of what makes this so hard is not only are we dealing with so very much um, pain associated with the betrayal, you know, our person has already turned away from us in so many ways for so long, and that's been painful in its own right, but then there's typically this big painful thing, this discovery that happens, right? Um, so we're dealing with that internally in our own experience, and what do I do, and how do I manage, and maybe there are kids involved, and that complicates things more, um, but there's also this, I mean, if we're all being honest with ourselves, there's this external pressure too, right? So more specifically, what I mean is like, if someone is faced with a decision of do I stay or do I go, do I work on this or do I not, um, that's a really painful, complicated thing. Like, so for instance, in, in, in my little story, you know, um, the way, the destructive way I chose to soothe my pain was with alcohol. 
right? So there were a lot of instances where I was out and, um, you know, I'm sure somebody looked at my behavior and thought about my wife and was like, man, she's got her hands full with that guy. He, that guy loves to drink. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of shame associated with alcoholism and addiction of any kind, sure. Um, but the, it's a different experience to love and be hurt by somebody who is turning towards alcohol than it is to love and be hurt somebody who's turning towards other people. Yeah. Right? It's a different kind of pain. And if you think about the sort of judgment and pressure that comes with that, there are going to be people who, in the should I stay or should I go conversation, there are going to be people who say, you got to get out of there. You are weak if you stay. He's trampling all over you. You know, get out and take care of yourself. And, you know, this probably comes from a place of love and, um, you know, that's, that's their best shot at, at solid advice for somebody. And then there's people on the other side who are like, you got to stay. You made a commitment. You got to figure this out. Right. And, and I really appreciate how you name, you know, how we approach the work, which is like, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, purport to know exactly the right golf for everybody. Right. We're going to support people's work, whatever that needs to look like for them. Um, but I wanted to hold some space for just that bit of the messiness. That should I stay? Should I go? And this larger topic of is recovery possible and a- after this sort of betrayal trauma, you know, that's a part of what makes it feel not so possible. It's just yeah. how difficult that situation is. I, I think that's really good, Matt. I mean, I, you know, I've got a lot of life experience, too. I'm turning 49 soon and have been dealing with addiction my entire life. Um, and people do not know what to do with sex addiction. Yeah. We, we are a lot more experienced with alcoholism and other kinds of addictions. You know, a lot of people know what AA is and Al-Anon and all of that. But when it comes to... Um, sexual betrayal trauma it is really a different animal that unless you're with an experienced therapist even your beloved family and friends as much as they they love you and they want to help you it's just really hard and and you're right everybody's got a different opinion and it's really about someone um looking within with with a with a qualified therapist and really figuring out you know where do they land on this topic what do they want to do what's worth it to them um, and, and really it gets down to for the addict and the partner how hard in recovery are they willing to work because it takes hard work for for everybody involved um, that's right yeah so uh, so early recovery yeah you know, we yeah think about, about next. That. yeah so early recovery for a couple ship what is that likely to look like um, like you said, we, we love this stuff. I love working with couples. Um, this work is, is challenging and messy, um, but it's ultimately about helping people find more security within themselves and within, within their primary partnership. So this is, this is really meaningful, powerful work, and, and we do our best to be really good at it. We do our best to find what works, and we look at the, the research, and we look at the scholarship. And um, The first thing that comes to mind in early recovery is kind of this language from, from our CSAT training about how there's kind of, there's phase one recovery in a coupleship and there's phase two recovery. So let's, what we're talking about for the next couple minutes is phase one, it's early relationship recovery. And the way I typically talk about that in my rooms is that um, we need to, early, phase one recovery is about managing crises because, you know, if I'm talking to the coupleship, it's, I say something like, you two are not done hurting each other. The fact that you're here is great and you're, you're ready to do the work, you're at least thinking about taking on all this stuff. You're here and we're talking about it. But there's more pain coming. You know, you're not done hurting each other. So...